Hi, welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm your host, James Lloyd, and today I'm joined by EFT practitioner and trainer, Grani O'Neill. EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Technique, which is more commonly known as tapping. EFT is a technique where you tap on a specific set of acupuncture points around the body to release stress and anxiety. We spoke about Grani's path to becoming an EFT practitioner, how it helped her with chronic fatigue, and how it can help to get to the root of a problem quickly, leading to permanent change. I really enjoyed this talk and I hope you do too. Don't forget to subscribe, review and share. Hi Gronia. Hi James. Thanks for joining me today. It's um, yeah, it's great to have you here. Today we are going to speak a little bit about EFT, uh, aka tapping, aka emotional freedom technique. So you are a, a trainer in EFT and a practitioner. That's right. Yeah. Before we dive into that, Gronia, if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about how you got to where you are in terms of EFT. Yeah, and I suppose my whole interest in the whole personal development area started a number of years ago. I got chronic fatigue and uh, we were living in the UK at the time and unfortunately conventional medicine wasn't able to do very much and I certainly wouldn't have been drawn to complementary therapy but it was more out of desperation that I started looking at other areas because the doctors, they were just saying, oh, you know, just take some time off, take a rest. But I kind of felt I needed to be doing something. So I suppose I looked on it like a project and I was looking for ways of like, how did I get to be in this situation? And, you know, so did a lot of counselling, did lots of different therapies. And I suppose that was the very start of my journey. Um, I eventually got over my chronic fatigue and I decided that I wanted to do, to do to ex- explore the whole complementary therapy area. And I'd come from a corporate background. And so my first thing was to do a coaching course, which was fantastic. Then I went and I did a neuro-linguistic programming course, which is all about the language that we use and how, how we use different words. And the part of the course that I really loved was working on the emotions. So that was a bit that I really resonated with and really enjoyed and I suppose from then on, I did some hypnotherapy and then I did uh, tapping. So I learned how I trained in um, EFT, emotional freedom techniques. And once I learned tapping, I just found it is the thing that gets to the root of things very, very quickly. And I just loved using it for myself. And it's a thing that I use for myself all the time. And also I, when I'm working with other people, it's my number one thing um, that I start to use with people. So on your journey of uh, looking for techniques and strategies to, to help, that's one that stood out for you that has resonated or maybe even just had the best outcomes for you? Yes, yeah. And I mean, I didn't know about when I was in the throes of my chronic fatigue, but it's all part of the journey and was getting me closer. But I just, as I say, as soon as I started doing the tapping, I just said, oh my goodness, this is just fantastic because it just, and I suppose the difference between tapping and something like a conventional therapy, like counselling, is that we're very much working on the emotions. So the people who kind of come to me, I always say that they've been around the block a few times and they understand why they are the way they are, but they still haven't changed. And what we're doing is like we're very much driven by our emotions. Like most people are driven by our emotions and by our feelings. So with tapping, we are working directly on the emotions and trying to neutralise whatever emotions are causing us to engage in a certain type of behaviour. So it's, they might be able to rationalise to a degree why they feel like they are, but that seems to not quite do the trick, just being able to know what the problem is. Yeah, it, and it depends. I mean, everybody is different. For some people, just knowing it is enough. 
And then for other people, then this extra step is helpful for them. You know, everybody is different. Um, and as I say, sometimes just, oh, yeah, oh, I understand that. And I, and you, I change my behavior. But sometimes people are still engaged in the same negative behaviors and negative ways of thinking. Um, so tapping certainly helps with that because it's working on the emotions. So maybe if we wanted to discuss what tapping is, um, I know that might be a bit of a broad question, but uh, would you want to give that a, a go answer in what tapping is? Yeah, so emotional freedom techniques. So it's a system where you tap on a given set of acupuncture points around the body. And when we tap on these points around the body, just to say the brain, you will know this from your EMDR work about how the brain works. But one of the things that happens when we stimulate acupuncture points, the blood goes from, so you have the, the, mid, the midbrain, the limbic system. That's the part of the brain that controls fight, flight, or freeze. And so when we are feeling stressed, the blood goes from the part of the brain, the new brain, which is the neocortex, which takes up most of the area of the human brain. It goes from that part of the brain where ration, reasoning, logic, creativity, all that stuff is in the, new, the neocortex. The blood goes from that part of the brain where we are stressed and goes straight to the limbic system. And it's one of the things that happens is that the amygdala is triggered and it starts producing the stress hormone cortisol. One of the things that happens is when we start to tap, it sends a calming signal to the amygdala, switches off the amygdala, and the blood goes back from the limbic system, goes back to the part of the brain where logic, reason, creativity is stored. So people often say when they start to, oh, actually, I feel calmer now, or I can think, I can think more clearly. Because when people are stressed, they say, oh my God, I can't, I can't think straight. And there's no, th that makes sense because the blood has gone from the part of the brain where ration and reasoning is stored and it's gone straight to the, the fight, flight or stress part of the brain. So that's one of the things that tapping does is it, it actually sends a calming signal to the brain, switches off the amygdala, the immune response genes are turned up and the information, gene, the information response genes are turned down. That's uh, that's really interesting, uh, Grania, and um, it's something that is uh, I've read about before. Right, is one way of looking at that fight or flight response is that the the, the thinking brain or the, the cortex is unplugged when that fight or flight response is is uh, triggered, and it's just all kind of emotion, and it's a lot harder to to rationalize things. But the EFT can help uh, soothe the brain. Would that be a, one way of kind of yeah, putting it? Yeah, that that's that's a good that's a good way of putting it, and. You know, people talk about fight, flight or freeze, but actually the big thing is freeze. That something happens and for whatever reason, we don't get to fully process what the events that has happened. So say, for example, something simple, Jack Canfield, who has written uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, he has a lovely video where he talks about tapping and he talks about it us helping to complete the process. So say your dog died and you're crying. Oh, my dog has died. And maybe your mum or dad can say that. James, stop that crying. Stop that cryingness. And you go, oh, you stop feeling sad about your dog. And maybe it comes out in the wash and you, you know, you, you process all the feelings of losing your dog. But maybe it gets stuck inside and you say, actually, it's not safe to show my emotions or um, big boys don't cry or my feelings are not important. And I suppose that's how negative beliefs and things are formed. It's by things getting stuck inside us. And one of the things that we do with TAP is trying to go back to certain core events and neutralize them, help you to complete the process to get at whatever emotions are still stuck there. So that actually, rather than five-year-old James reacting to a situation, it's, you know, it's adult James responding to a situation rather than just reacting. So that's really, I suppose, at the heart of what we do with TAP. 
Mm, you know, you made some uh, fantastic points there, Gronia. Um, one of the first being the the fight, flight, or freeze response, and how the, that freeze response, maybe it's uh, not recognised enough. Uh, just the the term itself is more commonly known as the fight or flight, but that freeze response is so important because, um, you know, that's where we can get into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, in terms of there's a term dissociation. You know, when we are extremely overwhelmed, um, and if we dissociate during an event, the likelihood of um, experiencing ongoing trauma uh, is much greater. Um, and as you said, you know, that's where maybe core beliefs get developed when we that story doesn't have, I suppose, a, a reasonable ending, especially as a child. You know, we make sense of it from a child's point of view. It isn't explained to us from a more adult perspective. And it also helps us understand that you know those those maybe very rigid beliefs we have at an older age um that are quite kind of global broad based like i am bad the world is scary you know they're almost like things that would develop at a young age so it would make sense that these stories um that we uh that we tell ourselves or how we interpret the events um you know lead to this interpretation of the world Yes. And I think, you know, what I always say to people, people are sick of me saying this, like, you know, you didn't pop out of the womb thinking I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough. So something has happened. In most cases, you didn't, you know, I know that certain things can be inherited. But in most cases, something has happened to make you feel like this. Because when you think about a baby, a baby cries, it gets fed, you know, something has happened to make it think, actually, I'm not worthy or uh, I'm not good enough. So it is about kind of finding, finding those core events. And and you're right, it's, it's people just say fight or flight, but freeze is a big thing. And the thing about dissociation, it is a very useful strategy because maybe at age five, it would have been too overwhelming for a child to, and it doesn't have to be trauma with a capital T. Now we all know what the big traumas are, but smaller traumas like something that might have happened in school. So for instance, I might work with people who have a fear of public speaking or speaking up in meetings. And very often it goes back to school events. And as an adult, we might say, that's not a big deal. But to a five-year-old, you know, if somebody makes fun of you in class or a teacher says something, it is the end of your world. And so it's kind of looking at it kind of from a five-year-old's point of view, like how traumatic it must have been to have been called out or laughed in front of all of your classmates. Because you do think that's, oh my God. You know, you can imagine it, that is the end of the world for a five-year-old. So it doesn't necessarily have to be. And, you know, we certainly do work on, on the bigger traumas, but there can be lots of smaller traumas all the way along that we can work to neutralize. And very often people say to me, oh, my God, Gordon, I cannot believe that my five-year-old self was, was running the show. And that's that's the reality of it, because you know, very often, as I say, it's not adult James reacting, it's five-year-old James reacting. Mm, no, that, that's a, a great point that you make, Ronnie. I, I, got, I suppose it overlaps with that idea that that um, our thinking brain gets switched off. It's like we're almost transported back to to that um, how we would have thought at that age. And also what you, you said about the different types of trauma, you know, we might call them the big T traumas, but those little T traumas that we don't really um, appreciate the impact that they can have. Um, just a saying, it's not what we experience, but how we experience it. And, uh, you know, that's something, again, that maybe would be quite useful for for it to be kind of common parlance, you know, for us to be aware that, you know, these things can be uh, quite um, impactful. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, things like even like a first day of school could be very traumatic for somebody, you know, or something might happen on the first day of school. You know, um, I remember working with somebody and, you know, 
And it all went back to that first day. And that kind of set her up, you know, for having a difficult relationship then in school. So, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm just saying, like, dissociation, people say, oh, my God, that's terrible. I dissociated. But actually, that was a very, that's a very well-recognized way of surviving. That's how they survived whatever trauma went on, because they had to dissociate. So it's actually people say, oh, my God, that's a terrible, you know, I shouldn't have done that. But actually, they did the best that they could. And that's how they survived that situation was by stepping out and dissociating. And if I could just go back to something you mentioned a, a few moments ago, Grania, around uh, the acupoints, because that's something that uh, I quite I find quite interesting, because I guess it's not something I've come across a huge amount uh, in my own practice. Um, so acupoints would be... Uh, would that be the same as acupuncture? Are they kind of mapped onto the same? Yes, exactly, exactly. Would it be useful if I explain a little bit about the development of EFT and how it developed? Mm, yeah, no, I think that'd be helpful, yeah. So acupuncture, you know, we have all these rivers of energy kind of flowing around our body. And, you know, that's been around for thousands of years. And I suppose the, the precursor to EFT, so start kind of all from the 60s, when... Um, there was an American chiropractor called George Goodhart, and he found that tapping on points was as effective as using needles and much less invasive. So that was in the 60s. Then in the 70s, there was an Australian uh, psychiatrist called John Diamond, and he developed a thing, a, a type of kinesiology where you do muscle testing. And he found that using certain phrases and tapping on points helped to resolve different emotional conditions. So I suppose that was kind of like laying down the marker. And then along um, in the, so that was in the 70s, then along the 80s came Dr. Roger Callahan, and he trained with, with, um, with John Diamond and he worked with people with phobias and you know, anxiety. And he was working with somebody who had a very strong fear of water, really bad phobia of water. Now, this woman, apparently, it was around the time that Jaws came out and she was um, delighted when Jaws came out because it meant her kids didn't want to go to the beach anymore. So she was thrilled, you know, but she was terrified, absolutely terrified of water. And she happened to say to him in a session, to my stomach feels a bit, a bit sick. So he said, look, you tap under your eye. So that's your stomach meridian. So she, she tapped under, under the eye for a couple of minutes. And then she said, I don't have a fear of water. I thought, oh, OK, this is very unusual. So then he started investigating this more and he developed a thing called thought field therapy. And with thought field therapy, you tap on different points and a different set of points depending on what the emotional condition is. So if it's anxiety, it's one set of points. If it's sadness, it's another set of points. So you had to be able to muscle test to, to determine which type of points you should tap on. And then you also had to learn, I think, about 200 different algorithms of points depending on what you were working with. And then along in the 90s came a man called Gary Craig, and he was a Stanford-trained engineer and a personal performance coach. He trained with Roger Callahan and he said, well, this is great, maybe a little bit complicated. Is there a way of simplifying it? So he came up with EFT or tapping as we know it today, where we tap on just the same set of points, no matter what the issue is. So you don't have to know all these different sequences of points. You don't have to know how to, uh, to do muscle testing, but you use the same set of points, no matter what the issue is. And you do a certain setup phrase or whatever and say different words that are tapping along so so this was, that's how it developed and if you think of the body the body is all these rivers of energy so in acupuncture they're called meridians and when we think about a certain event it's like a big tree has fallen down and so you think about say for instance my i have an exam oh my god my exam and every time i think of it, i keep hitting this block 
and think, oh, oh my God. And, so, and we have very physical reactions to sweat. Like we might have tightness in the chest or we get a headache or whatever. And when we tap on these points around the body and we say the words, what it does is it activates a part of the brain that is stimulated and is relating to the um, to whatever is going on. So say, for instance, an excess. So it actually activates the neural network in the brain. And what it does is when we tap on the points around the body, it shifts the block a little bit, sends a calming signal to the brain. So it's like, oh, actually, I don't feel so stressed about the exam. And you keep on doing that until the stress comes down completely. And we, you know, we always aim to get it down to a zero. So it's uh, it's been developed over the past kind of 50 or 60 years based, I guess, originally on Chinese medicine. Would that be our Chinese philosophy when it comes to the body's flow? Yes. Yeah. Otherwise known as as qi. Would that, is that the, the same kind of energy system that would be understood? Um, in? I think so. But I am I kind of more familiar with acupuncture sure. and acupuncture yeah, meridians. Sure. Yeah. And is there like a biological foundation for the for these points, you know, like a certain type of nervous system or? Well, they have. So the acupuncture points themselves, they have a, a, certainly have a concentration of nerve endings at these points. And it, there have been studies done. So a, a particular Korean study showed the evidence of the different meridians around the body. So certainly there is there is evidence that shows that there are actually that they, they were able to, to, to track what it looks like, the meridians in the body. So, so certainly there is evidence for that. But just to say how acupuncture developed in China um, it was all done by observation. So the, the subject of anatomy was, I believe, not, not practiced. So all of the, and if you go to an acupuncture, like they're, they're taking your pulse rates, they're asking questions, they're looking at your tongue, they're looking at your eyes. So they're looking for very minute details. And so the practice of acupuncture, I say, it was done by observation. So that's how it was developed. So it wasn't done by chopping open bodies. It was done purely by observation. So it's really looking at the minute changes in the body. And what does a course of treatment look like, uh, Grania? I guess I asked that because from my own background, which is CBT and EMDR, um, they're quite kind of structured uh, when it comes to, you might do a formulation um, or conce case conceptualization, which might be like, well, this is kind of the problem and this is kind of how we'll work on it um, as far as we know at the moment. And there'd be a fair amount of structure to what you'd be looking to target uh, each week. Would that be the same for EFT or would it be a little bit more open? It's probably is a little bit more open. Uh, it, it, it depends, you know, it depends. I mean, so before I see anybody, I would always have a conversation with them. And my, my quest would be like, well, you know, what's number one, what's bringing you to contact me? And then what do you want to achieve? And um, and I usually certainly when I start to work with somebody, I start kind of to work with the body, kind of noticing any kind of bits of tension or, you know, any tightness or whatever and start to work with, with the body. And then it, it depends. So say, for instance, like something like social anxieties, that's a very, very common thing. So if somebody comes to me with something like that, um, what I would be trying to do is, as I say, you didn't pop out of the womb with social anxiety. Something has happened. So it'd be trying to find events and then trying to neutralize events. So very often that's what we're doing is we're trying to find specific events and working on those. So I suppose that would be kind of in many, many times, it is the structure of a session. It's trying to find, okay, well, where has this come from? And then working on that. So taking the stance of where the body keeps the score, which is, uh, again, from my own background, well, with CBT at least, it definitely wasn't emphasised as much as since I've looked into other forms of therapy, how important the body is when it comes to therapy. Definitely. I mean, I really would agree with that. And, you know, 
even for sometimes, I mean, I always think like the body, when we can't express ourselves, the body comes up to talk, you know. I can't think about that in my own chronic fatigue, you know. Obviously, there's lots of stress going on in my life, and, and sorry, chronic fatigue is different for everybody. Um, but I just think that I was I was stressed, but I actually didn't even realize I had no awareness at all. So the body eventually says, look, OK, that's enough. You have to you just have to stop now and and kind of rebuild yourself up again. So very often, you know, people might get a headache every time they see a certain person or they get a sick feeling when they're you know thinking about doing a certain thing. So, yeah, the body comes up to talk all of the time, all of the time. And I wonder how much um, that would explain a lot of autoimmune disorders like um, I'm not sure is chronic fatigue counted as an autoimmune disorder, but I'm thinking of like fibromyalgia, IBS, where you know there would be definitely a field that would consider it to be potentially rooted in trauma and maybe linked to the, the amygdala being triggered so often that uh, our white blood cell count goes up to the point where it's attacking our body, uh, causing that inflammation. And I think there's there's lots that we don't know, and um and I think then sometimes people can they take on this blame thing. Oh, it's my fault that this has happened, you know. Um, but one thing I can certainly say is that I've worked with people with cancer, a lot a lot of people with cancer, and you know obviously the treatment can be quite invasive and can be quite painful. But I can tell you, if there is a strong emotion there, like for instance, maybe they were the way they were treated in a hospital, or somebody spoke unkindly to them. If there's a higher charge of emotion there, the pain is usually higher. So sometimes, for instance, when I'm working with somebody with cancer, um, they might have a pain level of about a seven or eight out of ten. But even if you got it down to a three or a four, you may not get it gone completely. But if you take the emotion out of it, that can make a huge difference to their life. Um, so, um, so I've gone around the house a little bit, um, but I, I think that's uh, extremely um, important to touch upon, though, because I, I wonder how much these types of therapies that do try to address um, the potential emotional underlying causes to things that are maybe seen primarily as physical problems um, or that are at least rooted in physical problems. How often, you know, there's recommendations or treatment is offered to support that side of things. Is that something that you're aware of? Yes. Well, and I think there's still so much we don't know. I mean, you know, people say, oh, stress causes cancer. I don't think we really still know yet what causes cancer, you know, because I've seen the most un- unstressed people get cancer and I'd say the most stressed people not get cancer. Do you know what I mean? So I don't think you can just say a blanket statement like that. I don't think it's as simple as that. And all I can say is that, you know, when I'm working with somebody who has a physical challenge, but I say to them, why don't we take as much stress out of the body as possible so that the body could do whatever it can do in conjunction with your medicines or whatever, so that actually you're not wasting your energy on being angry about this or you know, frustrated about this. So we want to take as much energy out of the body and then just let the body do what it's able to do in conjunction with whatever medicines, but we're just not to be wasting any energy. And so that's the approach that I would come at it with. And I guess there's a real emphasis on that the body is curative. You know, we have this inside of us. We have this ability that we can help uh, remedy these problems. It, it is inside of us. Yes, yeah. And I suppose always like we would have to emphasize that it's not a substitute tapping EFT is not a substitute for medical treatment so it can certainly be done in conjunction with whatever things you're doing and there's been lots of advances made in medicine you know in certain terms of cancer things which would have been a death sentence many years ago you know they've made huge Mm. huge progress so yeah I wonder what kind of problems might someone be experiencing that EFT can help alleviate uh very 
very common things like so I think it works on two levels so you could certainly tap for yourself and you know it'll help you with a little bit of stress and anxiety or whatever or feeling a little bit calmer and um, but I think I suppose where EFT really comes into its own is kind of certain things like anxiety maybe social anxiety and um, negative beliefs you know and um, low self-esteem lack of confidence and then you know the big one is called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Very, very good for that. Like with EMDR, um, um, that you that you offer, um, it's very, very good for um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the U.S. military is one of the approved therapies, along with EMDR, um, that's offered to war to war veterans uh, in the treatment of, of P PTSD. And what they do in the U.S. military is they actually train veterans up in EFT. And then they work with other veterans. So it's a really nice way, really nice way of working because they understand, you know, what it's like. So it's uh, it's very, very important. It's quite a significant endorsement to be used by the US Army because as far as I'm aware, they put a lot of research, they've got a lot of money that goes into research. And um, so the fact that they've seen that, well, this seems to be effective. Um, let's, you know, invest in it. Yeah, yeah. And and in certain parts of the NHS in the UK, they're using it. And in France, in one of the universities, they've started to introduce EFT training as part of their medical training, which is really exciting. So, I mean, I think France, like they very much embrace homeopathy and all sorts of different things. But it's exciting that in the medical school, actually, it's one thing what they're going to be, the brief therapies that is being uh, offered as part of the training. So that's exciting. And I do imagine when it comes to providing healthcare, trying to make it as cost effective as possible. And part reason why CBT is probably um, at the forefront in the UK, at least in mental health provision is that it's kind of short term and you help someone, I guess, be able to help themselves, which sounds like it can be quite similar to EFT. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose um, certainly people will be able to tap for themselves. But I suppose what we do is like with CBT, we're going down to core beliefs, trying to neutralize them. So not just core beliefs, but what's causing the core beliefs So what has happened to make you think that you're not worthy or I'm not good enough or actually it's not safe to me to speak in groups or whatever and uh, so we're going back to the core events rather than just core beliefs but taking that step forward going back to core events and neutralizing them so that actually oh actually now for instance you know i mean i worked with somebody with very bad social anxiety and um, and i suppose the reason that she came to me was because she had a young child and was worried about having a very bad panic attack being out with her young child and not being able to look after her and um and it was great, but like we recognized, we, we came up with events, whatever, we worked on those. And they weren't massively, you know, there's kind of things like, like, like not fitting in as a teenager, all these types of things. So they weren't like massive traumas, but they were just enough to make her feel uncomfortable. And we worked on those. And then she was like, she was driving all over Dublin, you know, walking to pubs on her own. And it just completely changed her way of, um, her way of thinking and her way of being. Something popped into my mind there for any listeners out there that are thinking, oh, maybe I can do this on the cheap. Maybe I can look for a EFT DIY uh, manual and do a bit of tapping on myself. Is that something that is recommended? Is there any risks that come with that? You know, we might have hit some off switch or uh, do some yeah. damage. Well, I, I don't think it'll do. The worst of things that probably will happen is that it does nothing. And, you know, it certainly can help with top line stress and anxiety. And, and that's why it is a great self-help tool. But really for doing kind of the deeper work, you know, you're not, you're, you really do want to be working with a profession. So if you want to work with some you know, core beliefs or certainly something like PTSD, you definitely want to be working with, with the trained profession. I'm wondering where you receive your referrals from. 
Grania because you know EFT is something that I've only come across recently um, I think I recall one patient I worked with in the past ever mentioning it so you know it's not something that's been part of the world that I've been working in at least so I'm, I'm wondering do you know where where people hear about it and how they might get in touch with you. So people generally come to me. So I suppose a couple of things. Google. Google is a great source, you know, that people. There's a, a um, an organization called the Tapping Solution, and they have really been promoting tapping worldwide. So they do an online, free online summit once a year, and they have millions of people worldwide tuned in. So they certainly have raised the profile of, of, um, of tapping. And so certainly that's definitely helped. Um, but I would have other complementary therapists like nutritionists or people who are reflexologists or um, sometimes who are counsellors. So they would kind of certainly refer people to me. Not the medical profession yet, sadly, but hopefully that will come in time. I wonder um, what will take for that to be the case, uh, Gron. You know, has it got enough of an evidence base to you know, be considered uh, effective enough so that the medical community would start to recommend it? Yeah, and I think you know, you're right. I mean, there, there are there is more evidence coming out. There's a lady um in Australia called Peta P E T A Peta Stapleton, and she's been doing a lot of research. So um, I think she has some new research coming out now shortly. But she has done um studies using functional MRIs to see the effect of tapping on the brain, and very very positive results. And if, if people are interested in the soul science thing, EFT International is the umbrella organization that I'm a member of, and they certainly have a thing on all the different studies and things. So I think, yes, more study is needed, and we're not there yet. Um, and I think as well, you know, who would have thought that acupuncture would have been accepted as a therapy for VHI and BUPA and all of these things? So I think, like, like you say, you know, it, it's come down to money, you know, if people, things are going to be kind of, you know, um, resolved much more quickly with a certain type of therapy, I think that will be more attractive to the medical insurers. But I think, yes, and there, there's, there's work ongoing in terms of providing more evidence. And, and I suppose it's a big thing with our organisations trying to get people to put out case studies and um, and all these different trials that, that are going on. I guess we're still very much in the infancy, infancy stages when it comes to uh, understanding mental health and treating mental health and as time goes on I'm sure people become more interested uh, and invested in strategies so you know I think the, the market will probably broaden in terms of what is on offer because you know one therapy isn't for everyone and for some people something like CBT might be right up their alley whereas for others mm, yeah I did CBT but it didn't quite do the trick for me and something like EFT might be more appropriate. And what I always think, it's like going to move. Some say, oh, my God, you have to see this movie. And you go to the movie and think, what the hell was that about? And it's just that we're all different. So different things are going to resonate with different people. So I always say, well, go with what resonates with you. Whatever you feel is right, whatever. And then, you know, just follow that. And, and I think you'll be doing okay. Mm. And, you know, I think that's a great analogy that you use there, thinking of, um, you know, a movie that someone might love, that someone might think, what was that about? Because, you know, we don't want to over-prescribe just one type of therapy, be it counselling or CBT, because I think we are at risk of that. And, you know, that might put people off because they're like, oh, yeah, I tried therapy and it wasn't really for me, when in reality there's a real pick and mix of therapies out there. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I had somebody come to me and it was to do with, um, it was, you know, I suppose it was a grief thing or whatever, but they felt, actually, this is a bit too quick for me. I want to take the time, the nice slow time that counselling would let me have to get over this particular death. And they just felt, oh my God, I don't want to be doing this to be getting over it quickly. I want, I actually, I want to take the time. So we had one session, that was it. So 
So yeah, so it just depends on where you're at and what you want to achieve. Yeah. I think the more people understand this, the more it they'll be, you know, trusting in the therapeutic interventions that are on offer and you know they might be more inclined to okay maybe we'll, we'll give it a try are there certain issues that eft isn't so suitable for yeah well what we always say is like do not go where you don't belong so certainly um the guidelines will be certainly if, you, if you're not trained in a certain area you shouldn't be going um, into a certain area and but certain things that you should we shouldn't do something like schizophrenia you know because one of the things that happens is when we start to tap, and especially when we start around the body, we have all these drawers of files of memories shut, and then the drawers start to open. So something like schizophrenia, you know what I mean? It, it just mightn't be that safe. So certain things like schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, you know, very heavy clinical depression, they say that, you know, you, you shouldn't be working on, uh, in those areas. Um, and would that be um, something that you would, that you might be, make them aware of? You know, we could be tapping into some memory networks where, you know, things you haven't thought about for a long time or things that you blocked off maybe for good reason at that time could come up. Yes. Yeah. And like I do say, like, well, it is called emotional freedom technique. So it, it can get emotional, you know, so just to make sure that people, you know, so people are aware of that, that it's not called calm, you know, to be, because so it, it does. And, you know, people say, oh, my God, I, I can't focus on the negative, you know, but actually, you know, Louise Hay, she has written a book called You Could Heal Your Life, but she was a big fan of tapping. She said, well, you cannot clean your house until you see the dirt first. So sometimes you have to have a look at a bit of the dirt, clean that up or whatever, neutralize that or whatever. And then, you know, that leads to kind of a cleaner, cleaner house, cleaner mind. I suppose that theme is true with probably all types of therapy that, you know, it's difficult. Um, it, it should be hard to a degree. Um, and I guess also the cathartic element of it um, which is common in EMDR and which re goes right back to, I suppose, Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis when it comes to the cathartic release that someone has when they tap into an emotion. Um, you know, that, that that concept has been around for quite a while. And I suppose, though, um, with tapping with EFT, that if something, if things get emotional, like we have ways of kind of like help to bring down the charge, you know, um, and bring down gently, whatever, so that the client isn't really we traumatize and also we have certain techniques so say for instance somebody has a very uh, traumatic memory like we have ways of working with it number one to be very gentle but also to distance so we've lots of techniques so that um before we actually get into working the event we've done a lot of taking the edges off it and uh, so that actually when we do get to the event by the time we get to the event actually we've taken a lot of the charge out of it already so that's one of the things is, it's all about being as gentle as possible and, and especially being trauma aware you know that you know, you can't just jump into kind of a big trauma. So it's, it's all all the time kind of being gentle, being gentle when you're when you're working with somebody. I know in EMDR at the end of a processing session, you might say to someone, OK, we've done some processing now and you might notice, you know, that it can continue after the session. You might have some old memories resurface or you might have some dreams or nightmares that you would let them know that it can continue. Would that be the same with EFT or does it feel like does it kind of stay within the, the session? I think I think it, it depends on the individual. I think that sometimes, you know, if people haven't thought about um, things or whatever, so it can bring up a bit of sadness. So say, for instance, it was something to do with their childhood, and then they could maybe just feel sad for their younger self that they didn't get the chances or whatever. Um, so it can bring up some sadness. Now, I usually give the people a little bit of tapping homework um, in between and just to kind of work on a few phrases. But then they all always will have the resource of, because they've done the tapping, so the way even pre-COVID, 
when I was working with somebody, they would tap on themselves. So I would show them what to do, but they would tap on themselves. So that at least they have that resources. And if challenging emotions are coming up, they can certainly do some tapping to help to, to take down the intensity. You mentioned that you might give them some phrases to say, and I guess that's not something that we've touched on. Is that, is that a big part of EFT as well? You know, when we tap, we will almost install, you know, positive phrases. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of think that, you know, with tapping, and I suppose kind of tap, tapping into my, my background in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, is that, you know, only 5% of what we do is conscious, 95% is unconscious. Now, they're different. People say, say different percentages. But anyway, the bulk of, of what we do is unconscious. And I think what we're trying to do a lot of the time is trying to get into the unconscious mind and to, to work with that. And, you know, the gate, there's a very strong gatekeeper there, and it's directed to protect you and to keep you safe. So sometimes, now not everybody gives homework or whatever, but I like to do it because I think it's, it's just it's like kind of opening up the, the unconscious mind a little bit. So it's not saying um, I'm happy and free or whatever. It's saying like, well, I'm open to thinking more about this or I'm open to feeling a bit more comfortable or, I'm, you know, what I mean? so it's just, gonna, it's just opening the doors a little bit. So that's what I'm doing. You know, when I give a little bit of tapping homework, it's just about, you know, say, okay, I'm just, just, just eking open the unconscious mind a little bit, trying to get in there and get in underneath. So, um, but lots of people don't give any homework at all. So it's just, it's just my own preference to do it. It makes me think a little bit about um, an aspect of treating low self-esteem at CBT. It's called the positive data log. I know it's not the exact same, but sometimes when someone um, has a very negative opinion of themselves, maybe in a particular area, one way of conceptualizing it is they've got a very negative core belief that doesn't have a, a positive alter, a positive core belief. So someone might think I'm... Um, I'm stupid and then you might get them to keep a positive data log of things that would um, support an alternative positive core belief so I'm intelligent and because it's as if the, the network isn't there to for that information to stick the nodes are there for when we can filter through that negative information but anything that comes that's positive there's nothing there for it to, to latch onto so by keeping a positive data log we can become a little bit better at well noticing these these things that we do and I guess almost developing fostering uh, a positive core belief and um, so I wonder if there's some overlap there you know about folks and on those the the, the positive uh, things that we're saying to ourselves yeah I suppose it's a different way of work so say for instance you come to me and you say like well, I'm not worthy that's your your core belief I'm not worthy or I don't deserve or I'm not good enough um so what we would just have to say okay like how true does that feel so don't say how true is it how true does it feel? Because, you know, again, like we're being driven by our emotions and our feelings. And to so say something, oh my God, it feels 80% true. So that's what we call a tabletop. So that's kind of our benchmark that we want to kind of to work to, to work towards, you know, reducing. So that's your tabletop. And then well, what supported our different events, what we call the table legs. So something has happened to make you think that I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough. And what we would do then is that we will identify like the main legs. Now you don't always have to sometimes it's like oh my god Cronia, i'll be with you forever you know i have to go through everything but you don't have to go through all every single thing once you get the big the, you know, the big events or whatever the rest of them sort of seem to fade away into the background so if you have the take your tabletop is i'm not good enough we identify what the table legs that are propping up and that are supporting this belief we find the event so say for instance something happened at school we neutralize that completely whatever and then we go back and test the belief and you'll very often find that actually, oh, actually, that doesn't feel as strong now. Maybe it's gone down to 60%, 60% or 50% true. And then when the client goes away, then you'll be, they'll be noticing 
differences. So, for instance, I had somebody who found it very hard to speak up in a meeting full of men, or whatever. And then she found we did well, after one session. So actually, I was able to sleep with, or to, to speak with a smaller group, or whatever. And I felt okay, or whatever. So she had that little bit of a, a leg up, or whatever. So all the time they're noticing small changes. So you wouldn't necessarily do it in one session. You probably do it over maybe three or four sessions. Um, but each time the client would be noticing a little bit of a positive uh, change. So it's a slightly different way of working, yeah. Yeah, and what that reminds me of what you mentioned there, that you don't necessarily have to work through every single traumatic event. Um, it's similar with EMDR, when you look to conceptualize a problem, you look at kind of past events, present triggers, and um, future behaviors that you'd like to change. And you might have a whole list of things and you don't need to target all of them, you know quite often you you target they're called keystone memories so maybe the first time something happened or the worst time if you were to rate it how distressing it is to you now and then that can just be like the keystone you knock it out and the rest come tumbling down so i guess there's probably uh yeah some kind of underlying mechanisms that share uh, similarities between the two exactly and in eft it's called the generalization effect so it's actually you you got the big trees once you knock down the big trees whatever all the little trees fall down that's the analogy that we use what do you consider is the future of EFT in, in Ireland, Grania? I'm I'm very hopeful for it because, I mean, certainly the organisations that I'm a member of, EFT International, they're very much about trying to get it recognised and working to get it recognised. They're mainly UK-based. UK and and I think the fact that, okay, some parts of the NHS are using it, so I really do feel it's very positive. Um, and I think, it's, I think we will, I'm very hopeful that at some stage it will be accepted as a therapy, you know, that might be approved by medical insurers. So already in the US, they're starting to take an interest. They haven't approved it yet, but they're starting to look at it. Um, and like you say, it'll be down to money. If it's going to be save the money, then that that's I think it's going to going to help it. But but I do feel very positive about it because you know I'm I'm practicing this whatever about 12 years now, and like all the time it's building, building, building in terms of you know people knowing about it. So I'm I'm very hopeful. Uh, it will be kind of more accepted um, and um, accepted as, as a conventional therapy um, and be, be used more widely, uh, maybe more widespread in its use. That's what I would. Am I right in thinking that you are the, the only trainer of EFT in Ireland? Certainly in the South. Now, I know that somebody was training up in the North of Ireland, but um, I'm certainly, as far as I'm aware, in, in terms of EFT International, so they're different training organisations. And just to say that the EFT International, it's not a kiss me quick course. You do a course and you're okay, there you're qualified. So the EFT International, you know, you do level one and then you do level two. And that's really the start of your journey. So then you do like case studies and there's ongoing mentoring and supervision. So it's quite a quite a rigorous process that we go through. So so that's sort of the training organization I'm with. So I would be the only trainer of EFT International um, in Ireland. As far as I'm aware, and I'm a certainly well, I haven't checked the website, but... Um, I don't think there was anybody else from EFT International. Um, I think there was somebody I heard of who was training and who had started in the north, but I actually had connected with her. And have you noticed as a trainer, has there been an increase over the years in people looking to access that training to become trained EFT practitioners? Definitely, definitely. And people who are counsellors and psychotherapists, you know, as well as lay people who want to come to who are interested in learning it as well. But I'm definitely seeing more people in that area wanting to use it and seeing the benefit of using it in their practice so yes how long does the training take and is there a certain period of time that you have to be practicing before you become accredited 
So um, now everything's gone online, so I'm doing it all by Zoom, whereas before it was all in person. So so um, level one, um, we, I do it kind of like, I just divide, rather than doing one big weekend of it online, I think it's a bit much for people. Um, I do it over four weeks, so three hour sessions, so three hours over four weeks for level one. Level two, I personally do it, um, I do um, five, three hour sessions, so it's over five weeks. And then there's a whole um, mentorship and, you know, doing cases. So it can take up to a year for you to qualify. But it's, you know, there's certain benchmarks you have to achieve. There's certain number of case studies you have to do. You have to do a number of practice sessions, like like with counselling or anything. So it's quite, a, as I say, it's quite a rigorous process that people go through to become qualified as an EFT international um, um, therapist. I think that's everything for us today, Grania. Um, I really pre- appreciate you coming on and... Uh, yeah, I think I've learned a lot about EFT today and uh, uh, yeah, no, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And you too, James. Great. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks, Cronia. All the best.